0: In 1968, a movement was taking shape in the United States. A movement of progress. From civil rights, to serving the impoverished, to stopping the war in Vietnam. For the first time, many youth and minorities were speaking out and making a change in the nation's political climate. At the front of this movement was Bobby Kennedy. Over the last several years, Bobby had dedicated himself to these causes and giving a voice to the voiceless. And just as it appeared he was on the brink of victory, It all came to a sudden
1: tragic end i'm mike i'm ian and i'm dave if you thought big brother was the only one with conspiracy theories surrounding his death stick around this story might not have a magic bullet but it's definitely worthy of the necro treatment this is necronomapod
2: i thank all of you who made this possible this evening all of the effort that you made and all of the people whose names i haven't mentioned but who made all, did all of the work at the precinct level, who got out the vote, who did all of the effort, um, brought forth all of the efforts that's required. I was a campaign manager eight years ago. I know what a difference that kind of an effort and that kind of commitment makes. So I thank all of you, those of you are here. Oh, Mayor, Mayor Yorty has just sent me a message that we've been here too long already. Oh,
1: So
2: uh, my thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there.
0: I'll tell you what, Ian, why don't you just sit back, relax for the next couple weeks. I'll just take over. Have Sounds a little, like a
3: plan. Have a well-deserved vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no research at all, especially this week. Dave did the bonus episode coming up. That's
1: true. I did.
0: Yeah, or if you're listening to this on Sunday, that was released yesterday on Patreon. That's true, it was. Slash So <laughs>
1: Yeah,
3: so big vacation.
1: Man, a lot of
0: gaming going
3: on. Yeah, a lot of wrestling. There you go. Wrestling launching.
1: Like in the apartment wrestling? No. Oh, okay. No. Let's check him. He Ugh.
3: could tie
0: that in, though, to uh, what's that documentary that just came out, that killer Sally or killer the bodybuilder girl who killed her husband. There's like a little documentary of it on Netflix.
1: I have not seen that.
0: Mm. Um, but she was, uh, they were like a bodybuilding couple and um, he was abusive to her and like, didn't want to work. So she was still working and like doing bodybuilding stuff. But then on the side was doing like some of that apartment wrestling stuff to like, just to make ends meet and make extra money. Uh, Killer Sally. It's on hmm. I mean, Netflix or something. Are they serving but, sushi trays at the apartment <laughs> wrestling? <laughs>
3: I can't imagine. It's very. Uh, it's not a classy situation.
0: I'm just saying, you could have said yes to Dave's question. It could have been research. Mm. It all ties back into a, to a murder. <laughs> so, if you, what if he just would have been like, "Yeah, I've been watching a lot of it."
1: What if he picked his topics strictly so he could watch apartment wrestling going forward? We can do any topic as long as it has apartment wrestling tie-ins. <laughs> I think our show would be over by the end of the year. <laughs> Who was it that did
3: the the apartment wrestling? killer sally i just told you no no that. i know but there was a wrestler that creeped me out oh nicole I, bass yeah she that's when i first Howard found out about too. it
0: wasn't she in like the whack pack yeah yeah she didn't in private parts
3: she was um i had never even heard of apartment wrestling before until a couple months ago and i was like oh man it's fucking weird and i think <laughs> her
0: biggest issue was she didn't tell jim ross about it when he hired her
3: yeah, She's she like, lied God damn, it.
0: you got to tell me up front. there sure anything <laughs> we're going to find out about later on?
3: <laughs> Her sound is really scummy, too. Like
0: Like if you if you look at like uh, like if you see like the images or whatever from it, like it doesn't look it's the highest quality production. No. Like some of the stuff you see out there, it looks like I think it can almost be from like, you know, the high-end porn producers or whatever it is. And then there's some stuff where it's like, I don't know, a shady old like one of those old video rec- recording cameras yeah. in like some Super 8. You hear like a legitimate domestic dispute going on outside.
3: Yeah, that's what I mean, just real, not good stuff. You hey guys, apartment wrestling in there? Holla, holla!
1: You <laughs> <laughs> see what's doing up in there? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so there's our job rule for the week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mandatory job rule clip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Random, randomly throughout this episode. We're just going to have them pop in maybe every <laughs> now and then. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I'll take the, uh, the wheel for the next couple weeks. Professor Mike? Uh, history class. Hopefully people like it. Um, they seem to enjoy the, uh, the past episodes I've done. So, What are the past episodes you've done? Uh, Kent State, I think you did. I did Kent State. I did uh, The Assassination of President Garfield. Oh, yeah, that one. I did uh, Foxcatcher. Oh, yeah. It's a forgotten one. I even forget how oh, I did that one. That was often. a weird story, huh? DuPont? Yeah. yeah. The Steve Carell movie is terrible. That was good. It is good. so boring. I didn't watch it. There's a net, I think there's a documentary on Netflix about it called like Team Fox Catcher. It's much better. Um, and he then just I, has
1: a blank stare. He looks into the camera the whole movie like with weird eyes and a prosthetic face or something, right?
0: Yeah, like well, the Dupont guy was a creepy yeah. dude. And did he,
1: he have a prosthetic face in that? I think like something
0: looked weird, a, right? Like, yeah. Steve Carell, I think, he has a pretty big nose in general. Dupont's just dwarfs it. That must so have been what it was. It was, yeah. Um, and then I did the two wrestling shows, the uh, Benoit tragedy and Bruiser Brody, but I think those might have been Patreon.
1: I think that's right. Yeah.
0: And I recently All did right. the uh, assassination of William McKinley over on uh, Hashtag History.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: You're a well-traveled uh, a podcast, podcast narration expert, mine. Just spelled in the resume, so eventually I could just go solo on you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be the Ace Fraley, and I'll go solo, and then no one will ever hear from me again. Um, <laughs> what was his group called? Ace Fraley's? Fraley's Comet.
1: There it is. Yeah. That's well, a ridiculous band name. <laughs>
0: he had New York Roof, right? That's, That's a, a good, good song. One. Good cover.
1: We'll get Vinnie Vincent to replace you though. He'll be all right. Vincent.
0: (laughs) Uh, So anyways, um, I've been looking forward to doing this one. This one's, um, this one's uh, been an important one to me. Just, I think, you know, we've talked about on past episodes, Bobby Kennedy is probably um, my biggest hero when it comes to people that you admire or that, you know, maybe that you haven't met that you admire, or, you know, we there's the game of, if you're going to have dinner with three people from history, like he's gonna be my first choice every time. Hmm. Um, Big fan of his uh, and what he believed in. Read, i triumph trying to read every book I can get my hands on on him. Um, and it uh, would have been interesting to see what would have happened if he would have become president. It would. So. Might be a different course of history. Very much could be. This is also a, a, an interesting one and fun one because, you know, like you will see today, we're going to give you a pretty straightforward story, um, which is the way that, you know, the government and authorities would have you believe that everything took place. And we'll tell that story. And then next week get into the conspiracy theory surrounding this, because there is a lot of evidence to suggest there may have been more than just what you're going to hear today. Mm. Felt like it was better to break it up into two parts and to do one super long, long, long episode. That makes sense. So diving into my first two-parter, I don't love this. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to give it a go. Um, and then I'm also going to do my best to just try to present the information as factual as possible and, you know, without any uh, uh, bias, just because I like people to make up their own decisions. So I try to do that in past ones. And I think we, we always try to do that for our episodes. So hopefully um, uh, people get that and then come to their own conclusions yeah, at the end. I'll provide any bias if it's needed. There you go. <laughs> well, I'll certainly give my opinion at times, <laughs> you know, when it's necessary. Um, So... Um, real quick, the some of the sources that I used for this um, the book Shadow Play by William Kleber and Philip Mel- Melanson, uh, the polka dot file on the Robert F. Kennedy killing by Fernando Farah, RFK biographies by Biographics, encyclopedia.com, and the RFK tapes. So just wanted to give those shout outs because that's where a lot of my information came from. Well, we good? Superb. Please yeah. proceed. Okay. <laughs> Teach us some history, fella. All right, let's do a history. Robert Francis Kennedy was born on November 20th, 1925 uh, in Brookline, Massachusetts, to parents Joseph and Rose Kennedy. So if you're listening to this the day this episode drops on a Sunday, it would have been his 97th birthday. How about that? It's almost like we planned it that way. <laughs> <laughs> almost like I told you guys six months ago. Here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> he was the seventh of nine kids and the third youngest of the boys. And while his father tended to favor his two older brothers, Joe Jr. and John, Bobby was kind of considered a mama's boy and tended to garner more attention from his mom, Rose, and was sort of written off by his father as just kind of one of hers. From an early age, his father urged Bobby and his siblings to stay up on politics and world affairs, often giving them trivia questions and having open discussions on current events at the dinner table. Bobby would later go on to say, quote, I can hardly remember a mealtime when the conversation was not dominated by what Franklin D. Roosevelt was doing or what was happening in the world. Due to his father's business ventures, Bobby moved around a lot as a child, which meant changing schools often. He's a big bootlegger, right? Rumored to have made a fortune in uh, bootlegging he during was, Prohibition. He would, absolutely. He was involved in a lot of stuff. Just yeah, in different companies. In every, Hollywood. Very, he Very his One of the producers out there mm-hmm. early on.
1: Then he was... Um, Roosevelt's ambassador to England. He was when the war started and he got himself in all kinds of trouble with his big mouth. We and we're going to touch on that a little bit later on we'll right. some LBJ stuff too. Um bit of an anti-semite this one, mm. allegedly.
0: Possibly, depending <laughs> on uh who you listen to and what he said, yeah. Bobby would later say that because uh he changed schools often, he kind of withdrew from other kids and was awkward and shy. Shortly after turning 18 in 1943, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. However, he didn't see any action in World War II. And that was something that really bothered him because he was kind of spoiling for a fight because his older two brothers um, had served and and, and were fighting overseas. Instead, in 1944, he was released from active duty and reported to the V-12 Navy College Training Program at Harvard College. In August of 1944, the quote Kennedy curse would officially begin with the death of Bobby's older brother, Joe Jr., when his plane exploded during a volunteer mission known as Operation Aphrodite.
1: And Jack almost got killed too with that whole PT 109. He got really fucked up. He saved a bunch of dudes, and but yeah, and his he was his back was fucked up the rest of his life, mm-hmm. and that's
0: what led to you know rumors of him being on pain meds during his presidency and. Getting injections from Doctor Feelgood and all that stuff.
1: And Addison's disease, like he was fucked up. He was yeah. a feeble man.
0: He really was, which is funny yeah. because he's portrayed as just this young, vibrant,
1: yeah, politician, right? Viral guy banging Marilyn Monroe. Like, <laughs> he right. could hardly walk. Yeah, constant pain. Yeah, she probably rode him then, right? Like he just lays him. Back. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Bobby nailed her too, right? I mean,
0: well, I was thinking about from this when doing these notes, that I've read, yeah. We could do a whole episode, and <laughs> I think there's a book out there like the Dark Side of Camelot. And it's just all about, uh, like, all the rumors and, and stuff that the Kennedys were involved in and the 1960 election and all that mm-hmm. kind of back-behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, that could be a fun bonus show one day. Like, Bobby was having
1: sex with her up until she died.
4: There's rumors Allegedly, of that. Yeah, yeah. there's rumors
0: yeah. of that. And there's, you know, she had ties to the mob, and they, they said that might have caused some mm-hmm. friction between the Kennedys and the and the mob and all that.
3: So i also still- very interested in the Kennedy sister the one that got the lobotomy rosemary Mm -hmm. yeah she She uh, could be a bonus episode i think i'm very interested in her story
0: she was um pretty much you know just intellectually disabled and joe kennedy the dad um you know very much cared because he was he was like rich and well off and you know high class and part of the the highest social standings he was he didn't want that exposed that that he had a disabled daughter and they essentially hid her, sent her off to boarding schools, sent her to at the time mental institutions Um, uh, like the Bobby and Jack would go on to say, like, they didn't really even know anything about her. She was always gone. They didn't have much contact with her. She was she kind of lived out on her own uh, and, and was sent away because they didn't want that image of her, uh, you know, as, as one of the Kennedy kids. And yeah, like uh, they gave her a lobotomy and it. it yeah. She was always a happy, social, happy-go-lucky, outgoing girl. After the lobotomy, she was like almost comatose. Yeah. So that's the bonus show, I guess. But what a guy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. Yeah, very much concerned with family image, and uh, you know, it was his goal that he was going to be president. And then, what it, when it, he couldn't anymore, it was his goal that his one of his sons was going to be president, and that was all that mattered to him. Yeah, and that's why because Bobby was the third of the boys. He was kind of off Joe Sr.'s radar because he had Joe Jr. and he had John. Once Joe Jr. passed, okay, John, now you're the guy. Bobby would go on to receive an honorable discharge from the Navy in 1946, at which point he entered Harvard as a junior. He graduated in 1948 with a degree in government and then entered the University of Virginia School of Law. On June 17, 1950, Robert Kennedy married Ethel Skakel of Greenwich, Connecticut. Like Bobby, Ethel also came from a prominent Catholic family. He graduated from law school in 1951 and shortly after, Bobby and Ethel had the first of their 11 children. 11 children. Not much for uh, contraceptives,
3: these Kennedys, huh?
0: Catholics, man. (laughs) Jesus Christ, man. Banging like rabbits. 11 kids.
3: That just, it's very stressful to even think about how that would work out.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Good, Good thing they came for money and could buy huge houses, right? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Prior to entering public office, Bobby practiced law in Washington D.C. and worked as a special correspondent for the Boston Post. During which time his father arranged for him to travel the world and report on his findings and discoveries. Tough job. <laughs> <laughs> in October 1951, just prior to his 26th birthday, Bobby traveled to Palestine, Lebanon, Turkey, Greece, and Italy. What's significant about this is this trip is that Bobby was joined by his older brother John. Who up until that point the two had not been very close. This trip would be the start of a lifelong bond between the two brothers. There was an age gap between them, a pretty big age gap, and like we said, like Bobby was more tended to by his mom, and Jack was, you know, with his dad. So they just never were very close or you know mm. knew each other well. This trip was kind of the start of that that bond that would become you know extremely strong, especially as they got into the, the White House. In 1952, upon his father's behest, Bobby made his political debut as manager of his brother's successful campaign for the U.S. Senate for Massachusetts. The following year, again, thanks to help from his father, he served briefly on the staff of the Senate Subcommittee on Investigations, chaired by Senator Joseph McCarthy. These are the infamous McCarthy hearings where, you know, you get a communist and you get a communist (laughs) and you get a communist. During his time on the committee, Bobby's investigative work, did confirm reports that countries that were allied with the United States against communist China in the Korean War were also shipping goods to communist China. But Bobby did not imply, as Senator McCarthy often did, that traitors were making American foreign policy. Due to his disagreements with McCarthy's tactics and accusations, after only six months on the committee, Bobby resigned. In 1956, Bobby briefly worked on the presidential campaign for Adelaide Stevenson, Uh, Bobby was not impressed with Adelaide one bit and ended up voting for his opponent, Dwight D. Eisenhower. He admitted that, huh? Oh, yeah. Hmm. He did not like Adelaide at all, and he was open about that. I believe under the Kennedy administration, the presidency, Adelaide was their ambassador to the UN. And even then, Bobby had no faith in him.
1: Hmm. How
0: about that? Yeah. So he voted for Republican Dwight Eisenhower in uh, 1956. Well, as did the majority of people, because he won.
1: What about in '52?
0: I I don't have that
1: information. We'll have to.
0: Declan, pull that up. (laughs) Pull up Bobby Kennedy's voting record. (laughs) From 1957 to 1959, Bobby would really begin to make a name for himself while serving as chief counsel to the U.S. Senate's Racket Committee investigation, corruption in trade unions. This won him national recognition for his investigations of Teamsters union leaders Jimmy Hoffa and David Beck. He would eventually resign from this committee in 1959 to run his brother John's presidential campaign. Some of the videos of Bobby and Jimmy Hoffa going at it. I was going to say,
1: you can, there's cool videos of that. Yeah. Of those investor of those uh, hearings.
0: Bobby was not happy when Hoffa would plead the fifth <laughs> and would call him a coward. <laughs> you and fuck with and you know, clearly me. you did something, but <laughs> Hoffa loved to get under Bobby's skin. Yeah. And he knew that Bobby was like a little firecracker. <laughs> um, I don't have this in the notes. I'll just bring it up now. When Bobby was attorney general, he was still going after Hoffa and, On his way home from uh, his office in Washington, he would go past Hoffa's office and it would be like two in the morning. And Bobby and his staff would be getting driven home. They're exhausted. They looked up, they'd see Hoffa's light on. Bobby, like, if he's still working, we're working. Let's go back. (laughs) And they said, once uh. Hoffa found out about this, he'd purposely just leave his light on. (laughs) Just to fuck with Bobby. (laughs) Um, In a very close election and possibly a future fun spin off series, Dave and I discussed that. Mm-hmm. In 1960, John F. Kennedy was elected the 35th president of the United States. And a lot of that really was on the shoulders of Bobby, who was just an excellent campaign manager, really knew how to work the system and uh, how to get delegates and um, did a fantastic job getting Jack elected president. Afterwards, though Bobby was reluctant and wanting to go back to Massachusetts to practice law, he was appointed by his brother attorney general of the United States even though he had never actually had any courtroom experience at this point, I believe as Jack said, uh, this would be a great way for him to get some experience. <laughs> I'm <not laughs> sure he, that would fly today. This is actually what he said in the uh, press conference, but with his swagger, like you know, it's oh funny. Oh my god! Yeah, hey, now, guess
1: what? I'm putting my brother uh, on as attorney general. He doesn't know that much, but he'll learn on the job.
0: <laughs> that's what. But that's he's like. He doesn't. I know he has no courtroom experience, but Barry, uh, this was the best way for him to to get some to learn a little bit.
1: Different times. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure people back then didn't love it either, but
1: yeah, it still
0: not. it got through. Uh, in his role as Attorney General, Bobby would serve as President Kennedy's closest and most trusted advisor, assisting him in dealing with the Soviets and the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was also during his time as Attorney General that Bobby became increasingly committed to the rights of African Americans to vote, receive an equal education, and use public accommodations. These views would eventually help him rise in popularity and his rise on the national political platform. On November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. This obviously was a massive blow to Bobby, who felt like his life had been shattered. Like we said earlier, over the last decade or so, they had become extremely close. Even though he was still grieving um, and, you know, appearing very depressed and isolated to everyone who knew him, he decided to remain on as Attorney General under President Lyndon Johnson, for the remainder of that presidential term. So we stayed on for about another year. He did this, even though him and Lyndon Johnson did not like each other at all. Um, And this actually kind of dates back to the election of 1960. Lyndon Johnson at the democratic primary was making a move for the presidency as well. He wanted the nomination. Um, And while him and kind of Jack were doing battle, Lyndon Johnson made some comments about Joe senior, their dad, anti-Semitic possibly because because Joe senior when he was the ambassador to um, um, England it was during the start of World War II and and Joe Kennedy was very much pushing FDR stay out of it. Big isolation, isolationism. This is Europe's problem. Who gives a shit? Let them take over. We don't need to be involved. Mm -hmm. And Joe Kennedy thought that was going to be his path to the presidency. I'm keeping us out
1: of this war. America's going to love it. I'll be the heir apparent to FDR. He even went behind FDR's back and got a hold of some low-level Nazis and tried to get meetings with Hitler to supply him with gold. In order to kind of pull back, and, that's interesting. And, uh, I don't remember if I've heard that. Yeah. he was doing lots. He's crazy. He was
0: giving speeches without FDR's like approval yeah, about yeah. how America's staying out of the war, and I mean, eventually he got canned.
1: Well, he uh, said like democracy's dead over in England and all kinds of stuff. Like, yeah, I think you're done this job. Yeah, FDR's like, you know what? Okay, to <laughs> We're gonna recall you. I think.
0: <laughs> and that was then when Joe Senior realized, okay, I'm not gonna be president. Now it's gonna be one of my boys. So, anyways, LBJ made comments like that, and Bobby didn't take kindly to him talking about his dad. And Lyndon saw Bobby as just this little shit, you know, who has a mouth on him, and and he's closer to to Jack than I am. And JFK and Lyndon got along well, but Bobby and 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 Lyndon did not like each other at all. And from the day Lyndon took office, he thought Bobby felt Lyndon thought that Bobby Kennedy felt that was his right to be the next guy in line, not Lyndon Johnson's. And Lyndon thought Bobby was gunning for his chair, you know, from the get go and wanted to take over as president and, you know, eventually run against him and and kick him out. I don't necessarily believe that to be true in the things I've read, but I know they didn't like each other. And Bobby certainly didn't make life easy for Lyndon, Mm. but he stayed on for the, uh, you know, for a year until um, Lyndon Johnson won re-election. Bobby left the administration and spent the next year, year and a half or so, uh, kind of in mourning and traveling the world, deciding what he wanted to do next. He eventually decided he was going to run for United States senator uh, from New York in 1966. His opponent in that Senate race was incumbent Republican Senator Kenneth Keating. And while many people didn't give Bobby much of a chance, he ended up winning the election by over 700,000 votes. What's interesting is that Bobby was called a carpetbagger for going in there. But based on as much as the family moved, given that they were from Massachusetts and, you know, had their home, and, you know, on the ocean. He spent most of his life to that point living in New York or as, as a youth because of the schools he was in and where his father was working. So it was a little unfair to do that. But, okay, you know,
1: like all of politics, <clears throat> it's about opportunity, right? Well, Kennedy's just get tagged as a Massachusetts family. So people right. might not necessarily know that. Yeah, do they have that compound up in Hyannisport at this point? I believe it's still owned by the Kennedys. I mean, at, back then. Oh yeah, yeah. Did yeah. they have it going all the way back there? As, like as that's much a as cool I know, spot, man, I, I believe
0: they had it when the kids were still real little. Like yeah, mm. yeah like like Bobby grew up. You know, they out had it there. for a
1: long time.
0: Yeah, and the compound's still there, and they all still yeah. like own it and stuff. And I want a compound. How do you do that? <laughs> Let's get into bootlegging. Let's get into. <laughs> Hollywood producing, you go over to England, become anti-Semitic. We we'll see how that works. <laughs> yeah, like if you
1: have enough gold to buy off, to try to buy off Hitler, then I think you can buy a compound. Right, he's one of the richest men in the world. Right, yeah. like at that time, yeah.
0: yeah, he
3: could definitely afford a compound.
0: <laughs> I hear the word compound though, and I, now nowadays I just think of cults.
3: Yeah, like I'm Shinrikyo. They had a compound. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> or like, like I think a <laughs> liquefying Waco, people. <laughs> like the Waco compound and stuff,
1: right? Like yeah, it that's it a negative connotation now, compound. But Hyannis Port was not. Like that's no, just
0: that place is sweet. All these gorgeous mansions right there on the, on the beach. Mm. During his time as senator of New York, Bobby focused primarily on three things. Poverty, especially among minorities and children. Human rights violations, not just in the U.S., but all around the world. And finally, ending the war in Vietnam. If you listen to our Kent State episode, you probably remember the division and tension the war caused in the U.S. Well, it was no different on the political stage, and it really came to a head during the presidential election of 1968. After President Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson would go on to win re-election in 1964 in a
1: landslide. From the Daisy ad. Ever seen the Daisy ad? I don't
0: know if I remember that one.
1: Like Barry Goldwater was the senator from Arizona who ran against Johnson in 64, mm-hmm. and I thought he was a bit of a... A nut and would bring a bomb, you know, World War Three. So Lyndon has that, uh, it's called the daisy ad. It's just a black and white, his ad. And it's a little girl picking daisies and counting. And then a big mushroom cloud with oh, the world, the world blowing up. Yeah. Like she's counting, picking the petals <laughs> off the daisies. And then it goes into the nuclear countdown, the launch. <laughs> it's Queen. Between- like, you need Lyndon Johnson this is going to get crazy. And then he fucking blew Goldwater out. I think it was the biggest loss in presidential history. So probably it the worked. most successful ad. And I think the thing we
0: need to learn is like, you don't fuck with Lyndon Johnson, right? Mm-mm. He's going to, he's going to do an ad like that. He's going to call your dad an anti-semite. <laughs> he's not going to fuck around
1: he's playing to win.
0: Well, and Lyndon Johnson went from being the most powerful man in the country as the, uh, Senate Majority Leader mm-hmm. in te- from Texas, took the role as Vice President. Which after- is the least powerful job in, exactly. the, in the government. I mean, he felt like he was castrated. And if you know Lyndon Johnson, like he's a rough tumble in your face, like the kind of guy you'd expect from yeah. Texas, right? Big giant cock, allegedly. Yeah. And he used to conduct <laughs> meetings while taking shits. Yeah, that's right. Like he would just be sitting there on the toilet with like his staff in front of him talking.
1: There's that, there, like that's big dick energy, right? Like, <laughs> there's that clip of him talking on the phone to his tailor. Yeah. And update, like, uh, fixing his pants because he's uh, letting his nuts hang a little down closer to his bunghole. Yeah.
0: That's what he said. He is. I need more space between my nuts and my bunghole. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great clip. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's a character, man. So, Johnson, like we said, won in a landslide in 64. However, due to his poor handling of the war in Vietnam... Failure to bring troops home as promised, his popularity began to wane, and many people within the Democratic Party felt Bobby was the man that should take President Johnson's place. Now, remember, that was Johnson's first term being elected president, so he could still run in 68. He had that little bonus year because Jack was killed. Initially, Bobby was hesitant to run. As much as he didn't like President Johnson and disagree with his handling of the war, he felt like it would make him look bad to challenge a sitting president and member of his own party. Bobby thought waiting until 1972 was the better move for him. And this goes back to, you know, Johnson was convinced Bobby wanted to take his spot. I truly believe two things. One, I think Bobby had it in his plan that 72 was going to be his time. And he was kind of caught off guard when they came to him like, no, we need you now. We like the, you know, this youth movement's happening. Mm -hmm. You're the guy. If anyone's going to take down a sitting president, it's you. And I think that kind of caught him off guard because he had this plan. You know, he was just elected senator in New York. And in 672, now, you know, Johnson's term will be up. It's my turn. Um, and the other part was, you know, nobody wants to challenge the leader of their own party like that. You know, it no. could cause huh. division and animosity and it could cost you the election. It very well could. Um, and so Bobby was really torn and really did not want to do it. Um, so essentially, all those people that had convinced him were like, OK, well, if you're not going to do it, we'll find somebody else that will. Enter Senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, who announced his candidacy for president as the anti-war Democratic candidate, a candidate for the younger generation of Americans. In early March of 1968, McCarthy challenged President Johnson in the New Hampshire primary. And while he didn't win, he got pretty damn close, winning 42% of the vote to Johnson's 49%. This was a huge moral victory for McCarthy because it showed that Johnson was vulnerable. And now seeing this and realizing he's losing support and steam to McCarthy, Bobby decided he was going to run for president. He announced his candidacy on March 16th, 1968. Fifteen days later, on March 31st, President Johnson announced he would no longer seek the nomination for president.
5: With America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. But let men everywhere know, however, that a strong and a confident and a vigilant America stands ready tonight to seek an honorable peace and stands ready tonight to defend an honored cause, whatever the price, whatever the burden, whatever the sacrifice, that duty may require. Thank you for listening. Good night, and God bless all of you. So I think,
0: you know, Bobby obviously saw that he was beatable when McCarthy got close to him. Uh, McCarthy didn't have nearly the support and machine behind him that a Kennedy did. And I also think that Bobby was like, okay, well, McCarthy went first, so he caused the divisiveness, maybe. Now I'm just going to jump in there because, you know, throw my 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 name in the in the hat yeah. or my hat in the ring. As you heard there, Johnson publicly stated he wanted to make sure his entire focus was on American issues and the Vietnam War and not have to worry about campaigning. But if you ask me, I think he was afraid of a face-off with Bobby, whom, like we said, he thought wanted his job from the get-go. And maybe even more so, I think he realized he was beatable and didn't want the embarrassment of of losing. As an incumbent Makes president. Sense. And what's interesting is that this is kind of, I mean, he bowed out, but I think he thought he might have lost in the primary, which really never happened before. One time in 1856, um, different times back then, you kind of just go in a room and all shout at each other till you come up with the candidate. Right. Franklin Pierce was looking for a renomination, and the Democratic Party was like, nah, you suck, pal. Uh, we're going to go with James Buchanan. And uh, Franklin Pierce was kind of ousted by his own party. Now, he wasn't challenged in the same format we know, but that's the only time where a party was like, ah,
1: we're going to be done with you now and move on. Then Buchanan uh, ramped up the country and set the stage for the Civil War. Yeah. He did, did no good on better on him. No better.
0: <laughs> Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan both kind of led us right to, uh, to the Civil War. Well, maybe if that Lincoln guy was any good, we wouldn't have uh, had any issues. <laughs> so now he's running for president. But on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. That same night, Bobby was scheduled to give a campaign speech in the inner city of Indianapolis, Indiana. He was pleaded with to cancel the speech. Riots were starting all over the country, and there was fear for his safety. But Bobby refused to cancel, and even though the police said they would not provide him with protection, he continued on with the speech. The crowd that night was made up almost entirely of African Americans, and they were all still unaware that Dr. King had been killed. Bobby broke the news to them and gave a very passionate, empathetic speech. It was something he did not rehearse ahead of time. He just spoke from the heart. That night, Indianapolis was the, one of the only major cities in the U.S. not to have any acts of violence or riots. The next night in Cleveland, Ohio, Bobby gave what I consider to be one of the single greatest speeches in American history. A speech titled, On the Mindless Menace of Violence. And I decided I'm going to wait and we'll play that speech to close out our series next week. But it gives me goosebumps every time I hear it. We'll play a clip of it. The whole thing's like 10 to 15 minutes long, but I found a good clip of it. We'll play that next week to close us out.
1: I read some of that today. It's
0: good. It's really good. Did you ever listen to it or just read some of it? I just
1: read the transcript.
0: Yeah, it's good. As expected, Bobby immediately had success when he entered the Democratic primaries. He was now competing against Senator McCarthy and Vice President Hubert Humphrey, who was taking President Johnson's place as the, quote, old guard candidate. Riding a pretty steady wave of momentum, Bobby entered the California primary looking for a major win that would easily separate himself from McCarthy. Let's get into the assassination, shall we? Good times, Mike. Good times. Well, this was good times. June 4th, 1968 was the day of the primary, and though it was a relatively close race between Kennedy and McCarthy, Kennedy won with 46% of the vote. Vice President Humphrey was not in this primary because this was back in the day where you didn't really have to enter all the primaries. Delegates can be picked up um, just through promises and deals and, and all kinds of you know, closed-door type stuff. Um, so you'd kind of pick your spots as to what primaries you were going to join. Humphrey was still leading with delegates at this time, too. He inherited Johnson's,
1: obviously, and he had a lot more pledged delegates than Kennedy. I know there's a a lot of talk sometimes whether Kennedy would have won or not if he would have lived. Mm -hmm. A lot of debate about that. Even
0: with this California victory, Kennedy closed the gap quite a bit, uh, but still Humphrey had the lead. It was way ahead. With a few more um, primaries to go, and then it would have went to the convention where you You know know, it would have been chaotic. Um, I think that Kennedy was having had a lot more momentum. And probably, well, I think he would have beat Humphrey in the end, um, but it would have been very interesting to see how yeah. that played out. Because I, you had a feel after this McCarthy was probably going to back out, and then where do those delegates go? Probably to Bobby, which would have helped him. And then you know, then the race is on. But even still, you have a sitting vice president now going against a, a, a challenger, which is not unheard of, but yeah. still interesting. Would have been very interesting. Yeah. Shortly after midnight on June 5th. Bobby made his way down to the ballroom of the ambassador hotel in Los Angeles, California. Bobby was greeted by a raucous crowd, all stoked to see their winning candidate. Bobby gave his victory speech. uh, The end of which we played at the beginning of this episode in our intro with the music behind it. Um, What's interesting. The note here is that there was very little LAPD presence at this campaign party. Um, That was by design by the Kennedy team. They requested that, LAPD have very minimal presence as they didn't want to be seen with them because they didn't agree with the LAPD's treatment of African-Americans at this time. So they said, it's not, we're campaigning, you know, for everything. You guys are not stand, stand, not what you don't stand for. We don't want you around. And LAPD was like, all right, fuck you. I actually heard a story, um, in doing the research that the LAPD hated Bobby anyways, because of his treatment of them. And you know what? Like, oh, this guy's high and mighty. So they didn't provide him with a police escort or any security but when his um um like escort train came through or like you know his limo from the airport to the hotel because they went through all the lights but without a police escort the cops pulled them over at every time <laughs> and gave him citations just as like an extra fuck you to them whatever so there weren't really many cops here which you know makes sense getting into what we're about to get into Upon finishing his speech at 12.10 a.m., members of his campaign team began clearing the way for Bobby to exit the stage and go through the doors of the kitchen corridor, which would take him to a press conference with the media outside of the hotel. As his staff cleared the way, they lost contact with Bobby among the throngs of people trying to shake his hand and greet him. Bobby then followed the maitre d' Carl Euchre through a back exit. Euchre led Bobby throughout the kitchen area, holding his right wrist, but frequently releasing it as Bobby shook hands with people whom he encountered. Euchre and Bobby started down a narrow walkway near an ice machine and a steam table. As they passed the steam table, Bobby turned to his left and shook hands with a busboy named Juan Romero. So real quick, I want to stop here. And before we get into like maybe the next three or four paragraphs, I just want to note that what we're the story we're about to give you is the official government version of the RFK assassination. It's the official view of the FBI, the LAPD and the prosecutors in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office. At just about 12.15 a.m., as Kennedy shook hands with Romero, a man stepped forward and then loaded a gun in Bobby's direction. Instant chaos ensued in the small, packed kitchen area. Bobby fell to the ground as others tried to grab the shooter and wrestle him away. Um, I want to set up, we're about to play a clip. This is from journalist Andrew West, um, who was recording at the time, and this clip picks up just after the shots were fired.
2: Senator Kennedy has been... Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? It could, is possible. It is possible, ladies and gentlemen. It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy, oh my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rayford Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently. Has fired the shot. He has fired the shot. He still has the gun. The gun is pointed at me right at this moment. So I hope they can get the gun out of his hand. Be <laughs> very careful. Get the gun. Get the gun. Get the gun. Stay away from the gun. Get the gun. Stay away from the gun. His hand is frozen. Get his thumb. Get his thumb. Get his thumb. Get his Take a hold of his thumb and break it if you have to. Get his thumb. Get away from the barrel. Get away from the barrel, man. What's the start? What's the gun? Look out for the gun. Okay. All right. That's it, Raper. Get it. Get the gun, Raper. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold on to him, ladies and gentlemen. They have the gun away from the man. In this shot. They've got the gun. I can't see. I can't see the man. I can't see who it is. But <laughs> Senator Kennedy right now is on the ground. He has been shot. This is a... This is... What is it? Wait a minute. Hold him. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald we don't want another Oswald. Call him, Rayford, Keep people away from him. Keep people away from him. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is it. Now, make room, make room, make room, make room, make room. The senator is on the ground. He's pleading profusely. Apparently, we're back. Apparently, the senator has been shot from the, uh, in the frontal area. We can't see exactly where the where the senator has been shot. But, come on, push back. Come on, grab a hold of me. Grab a hold of me and let's, let's pull back. That's it. Come on. Get a hold of my arms Let's pull back. Let's pull back.
1: Isn't that crazy, huh? That's a wild scene. It's right, right there. Yeah. Took him a long time to get the gun away from him.
0: Yeah. Um, you think he I think just it stomp was
1: a- on his hand and break his hand and you know, take it out. <laughs> Seemed like a big effort. So who was Andrew West?
0: Andrew West was a journalist. Oh, I didn't have listed where he was from, but he was just one of the ones following him. I think he had shortly before this just asked Kennedy a quick question to get an answer. And was just kind of commentating the scene. Okay. And then the shots rang out, which you don't really pick up on his audio. Um but, and then he's the one that, you know, kind of commentates it and has the famous line, grab his thumb, break it if you have to. And,
3: mm-hmm. um, he definitely gives a solid play by play for oh yeah, a well, senator. Yeah, he's a
1: good color man. I, he, yeah, he's right there. <laughs> I like how he's like, the gun's pointed at me right now. Oh, I hope they get it away.
0: <laughs> like, God damn, man, I'd be on the, on the floor.
1: Could have went the other way, right?
0: Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the chaos of like people trying to get away from the gun, people trying to get to the gun. Oh, sure. sure. Um, You know, you're not not knowing if it's been unloaded yet, if it's been shot yet. In the end, six people in the pantry received bullet wounds. Three bullets directly struck Bobby. One bullet lodged in his spine near the neck. Another bullet exited his chest. A third bullet, the fatal one, entered his head behind his right ear. A fourth bullet passed harmlessly through the shoulder pad of his jacket. Those are all very important things and things we're going to kind of dissect a little bit more next week as well. So remember that. Five other victims were shot non-fatally. Those five people were William Weissel of ABC News, Democratic Party activist Elizabeth Evans, Ira Goldstein of the Continental News Service, a Bobby Kennedy campaign volunteer Erwin Stroll, and Paul Schrade of the United Auto Workers Union. Paul Schrade is very interesting because we're going to talk about him a lot next week. Paul Schrade is very much one who thinks there was a larger conspiracy and somebody who has multiple times advocated for the release on parole of Sirhan Sirhan. Wow. Okay. As we were recording this on November 16th, Paul Schrade passed away one week ago on November 9th.
1: Hmm. So
0: how old was he? He was an older gentleman. Yeah. Yeah. He was younger than Bobby. Hold on. Uh, let me look up real quick. Um, but he was, very much a part of helping Bobby win California. Bobby had thanked him in the speech. And it ac- actually uh, I heard an interview with Paul Schrade when doing this. And um, when he turned, when Bobby turned on stage and thanked Paul Schrade, Paul Schrade like gave him like a little peace sign. And when Bobby finished it, his speech, he threw up a peace sign to everybody. And that kind of became like the, the theme of the night, mm. like throwing up the peace sign. Uh, 1924. I see. he was a year older. 98 than years old. Yeah. He'll be, he's a year older than Bobby. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he was ninety. He was 97 when 97, he died. Sure. Yeah, his birthday would have been in December. Mm. But he very much will be a part of what we talk about next week. Uh, he was one of the leading ones kind of calling out the LAPD on missing evidence and not following up with witnesses. So we'll get into him. So he was actually shot in the head and recovered. Good for him. Yeah. Lying on the ground bleeding, Juan Romero, the busboy we talked about, cradled Bobby's head and placed a rosary in his hand. And if you Google the Bobby Kennedy assassination, this is probably the most infamous photo that that shows up. Bobby, barely able to speak, asked Romero, "Is everybody okay?" And Romero responded, "Yes, everybody's okay." Kennedy then stated, "Quote, everything's going to be okay." Ethel Kennedy, who had been nearby but was not in the direct vicinity of the shooting, was brought to Bobby's side and knelt beside her wounded husband. She was three months pregnant at the time. Due to the crowds and the small area where he had been shot, it took medical attendants several minutes to get to Bobby. When they finally did, they lifted him onto a stretcher, prompting Bobby to whisper, don't lift me. These would be the last words he ever spoke. Bobby lost consciousness shortly after that and was rushed to Los Angeles Central Receiving Hospital, a few miles away from the Ambassador Hotel. Doctors there attempted to revive him and establish a heartbeat, and while he didn't regain consciousness, they did obtain what they considered a good heartbeat. And about a half hour later, he was transferred to Good Samaritan Hospital, where they were better equipped to treat his wounds. Bobby there underwent extensive neurosurgery to remove the bullet and bone fragments from his brain. He was in surgery for about three hours and 40 minutes. However, after surgery, his doctors were concerned over the lack of improvement in his condition. Finally, nearly 26 hours after being shot at 1.44 a.m. on June 6th, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy was pronounced dead.
5: Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1:44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. With Senator Kennedy, at the time of his death, were his wife Ethel, his sisters Mrs. Stephen Smith, and Mrs. Patricia Lawford brother-in-law, Mr. Stephen Smith, and his sister-in-law, Mrs. John F. Kennedy. He was uh, 42 years old. On
0: June 8, 1968, Bobby's funeral was held at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan, New York.
1: I've been there. Beautiful church.
0: Yeah. It looks gorgeous when I saw it. Like I've, I've watched, you know, Super i I'm cool. the nerd. I watched his entire funeral
1: on YouTube before. Did you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but it looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately following the funeral, his body was carried by private train to Washington DC. It's estimated that nearly a million people line the tracks on the route to DC paying their respects to Bobby.
1: So all the way from
0: LA to DC, New
4: York
1: to DC. Oh, so they flew him. To New York?
0: Yes. They flew him back to New York. Okay. They had his funeral uh, on June 8th, and he was to be buried that night in Arlington, in D.C. So after the funeral, they drove him from New York to D.C. Got it. um, Just hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. They estimate maybe nearly a million came to pay their respects. Mm. And I've watched a documentary actually on just that train ride and like his funeral, and it's just incredible the stories of these people and people of all walks of life, affluent, impoverished, everybody just coming out. Um, Just to get a glimpse of, you know, the train going by. Arriving late in Washington, D.C., that same day, Bobby was laid to rest in Arlington National Cemetery, a few feet away from his brother John's grave. He remains interred there to this day. Above his gravestone sits a single white cross. All right, let's take a few steps back at this point and go back to the Ambassador Hotel on the scene of the crime. The man lunging forward, shooting at Bobby, was Sirhan Bishara Sirhan. Sirhan was born on March 19, 1944, in Jerusalem, Mandatory Palestine. He was raised as a Palestinian Christian and was also born with Jordanian citizenship. It's interesting to note that when he does eventually move to the United States as a young man, he never did become an American citizen. Hmm. In Palestine in 1947, a civil war broke out when Israel sought their independence from the British-controlled region. This forced the Serhan family to flee the, their more affluent neighborhood in Jerusalem and relocate to a territory controlled by Jordan. In an interview with the Washington Post in 1979, Sirhan's mother Mary detailed the horrors her son had witnessed as a boy. He had seen soldiers blown apart, severed limbs, and his own brother killed by a truck that had swerved into him to avoid gunfire she said quote, he never had a childhood never was happy never laughed all he has seen is fear hunger dying human beings in pieces it's hard enough for a big man but for a child and look what happened to him the trauma he endured didn't end with the war it spilled over in the surhan household as well after his father lost their job lost his home and his job he became emotionally unstable He began to beat his wife and children. Finally, in 1957, when Sirhan was 13, the family fled the violence and immigrated to the United States under a special visa program granted to Palestinian refugees. Sirhan attended a junior high school in New York before the Sirhans moved west and settled in a suburb of Pasadena, California. They lived about 30 minutes from the Ambassador Hotel where Bobby Kennedy would be shot. While in California, Sirhan attended Pasadena City College. A staunch Christian, Sirhan explored several denominations as an adult. He identified as a Baptist and Seventh-day Adventist before joining the occult, the Rosicrucians. Rosicrucianism is a mystical branch of Christianity.
3: Sirhan, Because Christianity's <laughs> not mystical enough, right? Uh, our cult episode, <laughs> um, Order of the Solar Temple. Remember we talked about Rosicrucianism and that. I, I do yeah. briefly
0: remember it only because I tied it back to Sirhan.
3: Was it the Canadian fellows, the uh, Solar Temple? Yeah. Okay. They pulled a lot, some of their ideas from, uh, from that. Right.
0: I think all thirteen people that downloaded that episode uh, heard us. <laughs> <talking about> it
3: was <laughs> not well I, received. I will
0: never understand why the cult episodes don't do very well. I mean, they do okay, but why they do less than everything else? Those to me are the most fascinating episodes. Hmm. Other than like the whodunits where like we can debate like, you know, like recently with Scott Peterson, patreon.com slash Necronomapod.
1: Are a lot of people secretly in their own cults and it hits too close to home for them. Yeah, they're in the necronomicon. cult.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I don't because what, what's the other one? The Rajneesh Purim didn't do great. Tough titties. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's what, look what you're missing out on. You don't even know what that tough titties reference means. <laughs> Hell, I don't know. I like the cult episodes. Me too. Everyone go back and re-download
1: those episodes. Just get the numbers up. Like the Omshin um Shinrikyo shit, man. That mm-hmm. was fucking wild. They were liquefying people in the back room. and <laughs> They bought that helicopter. Yeah, the helicopter, Russia. that's right. <laughs> Searing gas attacks on the subway. Like no, it was off the right. rails. Yeah, I
0: forgot about that one. I mean, Jonestown did well, but that's like the yeah. that's a Mount Rushmore of kind of topics for this genre, right? Waco. I love that series. Yeah, I was really super into that one.
3: Remember, David Koresh was challenging that other guy to to like resurrect his mother from the <laughs> dead. <laughs> he like took oh over the gosh, cult, right? <laughs> and you even
0: got your interview with um,
3: uh, David
1: Thibodeau.
0: David Thibodeau, yeah, friend yeah. of the show.
1: He said uh, Ian didn't really say much during that interview. Nah, he just talked. He had a lot to say. That guy who said Ian didn't say much. The guy just talked. Like oh, Ian didn't I have see, to I say much during saying. the interview. I was like, what?
0: Someone critique Ian for that? Like, that's what, you know.
3: The guy was a talker. Yeah. He had a lot to say.
0: Well, it made your job easier, right? You probably had a list of questions. You got to like three of them.
1: Yeah, I think I only got to like two or three of the actual We've questions. We haven't done that in a while. What? Interviewed anyone. Maybe what? since Casey Anthony is apparently hitting the uh, the media trail uh, with her new special coming out at the end of the month. you She's think wild. she'd be up for being some on our PR, show finally?
0: PR for it? Hmm. Don't bring in an extra chair. She could sit on my lap. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to reach out to Sir Han and his team? Can you imagine us going walking into a jail? Hi, we're here for a podcast interview. <laughs> Sir Han told us it would be okay.
1: <laughs> Sirhan told us it would be okay.
3: <laughs> his name is really interesting. Same first name, same last name.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's somewhat common. Like I don't I don't know the story specifically for his, but is that common? I I don't know specifically. I, I mean, it seems like that's, you know, we don't do that. Right. Yeah, I don't know the history of, of, of what it is. I was gonna, like, what am I going to look up on my phone? I grabbed my <laughs> phone. Like, I'm going to look that up. What am I, I going to type in right Are now? Our first
1: and last names being the same? Is that common in the world, Google? <laughs> Please tell me real quick. I'm doing a show on it. <laughs> So Sirhan's ties to
0: Rosicrucianism is one theory that people believe led to his shift towards religious extremism and maybe even brainwashing. Again, that's something we're maybe get into a little bit more next week. Um, But what we do know is that he was practicing self-hypnosis while um, studying Rosicrucianism. The other thing about Rosicrucianism is that it tends to be a more peaceful ideology, but does have cult-like tendencies. So make of that what you will. Did it lead to him wanting to kill Bobby Kennedy? You know, I think people can make that connection if you want to, but we'll touch more on the hypnosis thing kind of next week. While in California, Sirhan also trained to be a jockey. He was only five foot five and weighed 115 pounds. So he worked at the stables of the Santa Anita, Santa Anita Racetrack until 1966 when he fell off a horse and suffered
1: a head injury. Ouch. Beautiful race course. I've always wanted to go see races there. Yeah. I'm going to get out there one of these days. Charles Bukowski used to go out there sometimes. Did he? Yeah. yeah. Just read that recently. Beautiful backdrop when you watch uh, racing out at Santa Anita. All right, let's go. Field trip. I'll go tomorrow. That sounds great.
0: <laughs> I'll show him like, excuse me, can you please show me the, the marker that shows where Sirhan fell off the horse? <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, can someone get this lunatic out of here? Can you imagine being with Bukowski at the, at the Santa Anita, betting on the ponies? Just, he writes. Oh, my God. He writes about
0: horse racing all the time. And it's just so interesting to me. Somehow, in between, he's going getting drunk or drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes. There's fights breaking out, and oh, that'd be a hell
1: of a the time. track's fun. I like going on the track too.
0: So after he fell off the horse, he had this injury during which time he said he spent time in a hospital. Uh, when he came home, some that knew him well described him as impatient, nervous, overly emotional, and always in a hurry. Uh, not to you know. Repeat myself too much, but again, we'll get into more of that next week. But he claims he spent time in a hospital. Medical records say he just had a quick ER visit. Sirhan would later admit that by 1967, he saw Bobby Kennedy as a hero, as a protector of minorities, the disadvantaged, and the downtrodden. However, in June of 1967, the Six Day War began between Israel and its neighboring Arab nations during which time, as senator of New York, Bobby pledged support for Israel, who would eventually go on to win the war. After Bobby announced his candidacy for president, he pledged to further support Israel by sending them 50 fighter jets.
1: If you see him as a you know supporter of the downtrodden and whatnot, and you're a Palestinian and he's voicing his support for Israel, I can see where it's not really going to go over well with you, with your image that you've constructed in your mind. And it did. About it with who Bobby lot, is.
0: Yeah, a lot of Palestinians and Arab, uh, Arab, well, sure, and sure. very, uh, you know, felt betrayed by Bobby. It wasn't a popular opinion. I mean, even to this day, there's still, you know, the back and forth on that.
1: But it's a U.S. ally. You're not going to get very far in U.S. <laughs> politics by right. denouncing Israel. Your career will be
0: over. I mean, Bobby's already coming out speaking against Vietnam. Now he's going to come out and say, what? Oh, I'm not supporting Israel yeah. as well. You know, that's. So here's what we know about the events leading up to the shooting. It was later stated by witnesses that on June 1st, 1968, remember the shooting happened just after midnight on June 5th. On June 1st, 1968, Sirhan was seen buying 22 caliber bullets at a gun shop in Los Angeles. Two days later, on June 3rd, he was spotted by Ambassador Hotel staff roaming the halls of the hotel. Early in the day, on June 4th, Sirhan had gone to a shooting range, and from there, stopped at a Bob's Big Boy to eat. Oh, I love Bob's Big Boy.
3: <laughs> I knew when I wrote
1: these oh, notes, I was like, "Dave's oh, going to
0: say something about Big Boy.
3: So is that just normal Big
1: Boy? Yeah. I, I didn't know Bob's there Bob's was... Big Boy was like the first name, right? And then they just shortened it to Big Boy? Well, they were regionally franchised. I thought like it was Frisch's and Bob's and... But it's all Big Boy. Manners. It was all franchised... Big boys. And you just put your own name on regionally it. Regionally named. Necronomic I think, I think Boy. that's how it works.
3: <laughs> that's a good fucking burger, man. I've Ooh. never had it.
1: What? Did they all started closing. Are you insane? You've never had Big Boy? Oh, no?
3: man. On our way home from Indy, there was a Big Boy. Oh, it's they so all good. We stopped cl- think, off at it to eat. Of course eat. you did.
0: Yeah, is there one I around did. us? <laughs> is there one even around anymore?
1: The closest one to us is either in Valley View down on Canal in the Valley or in uh, Cleveland at 130th and Brook Park. That's okay. the one
3: I've been to yeah. multiple times. Still we used to all the live time. there, right? Yeah. Kind
0: of in that area. Yeah. There's I I don't know, I've never been a, like near one.
3: Dude, we should make a road trip out to West 130th. It's
0: the best. I would absolutely try this. Next necro launch, if you guys can part from sushi for one meal, we'll go do a Bob's Big Boy. I love Big Boy. Then we'll Boy. go to Amber's Cabaret right over there in that area. What? what? Holla,
1: holla! Ja Rule wants to go to Amber's Cabaret with
0: us. He's walking more than walking around. <laughs> all right. So he had his Bob's Big Boy. While he was in the restaurant, he read in the newspaper that there was going to be a parade that evening to celebrate Israel's victory in the previously mentioned Six Day War, uh, which had ended the year prior in 1967. Um, Sirhan was kind of just going out of curiosity. Obviously, he didn't support Israel, but was going to go check it out. While heading to the parade, though, he saw signs for political campaign parties being held at the Ambassador Hotel. Looking for something to do, Sirhan stated he went to the Ambassador Hotel though he had no knowledge that Bobby Kennedy was even going to be there that day. While at the hotel, he drank a few Tom Collins drinks and eventually became drunk. He left and went to his car to head home, but realized he was too drunk to drive. He returned to the hotel to get some coffee and sober up. No one drinks Tom Collins anymore, huh? I love Tom Collins. Delicious. What's a Tom
1: Collins? It's like... Gin. Gin. Lemmix. Le- lemon juice. Yeah. Or like the mix. Like a
0: lemonade mix type thing. Uh, uh, simple
1: syrup and uh, club soda. That's it. That sounds pretty good. I mean, good. it tastes
0: almost like a fancy lemonade. Yeah. It's with uh, Robert De Niro drinks and meet the parents. That's, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> Heard somebody is a Tom Collins guy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: I got blasted on those one time. Um, me and my buddy Corey, listener of the show. Uh, shout out to Seabear. Yeah. Um, We got blasted one night on Tom Collins drinks. And the next day, I think I'm pretty sure it was like one of those, like, let's do a power hour. Now let's drink some Tom Collins. Let's do another power hour and pass out and go to bed. The next day we were both pretty hungover and we went to go get like Burger King or something. He orders a fucking lemonade. He took one sip and that was the end of that. Uh, Good call, Cor. (laughs) Good times. (laughs) So he went back to get some coffee and sober up is what he He says. The next thing we know for sure is that at 12.15 a.m. that night, Sirhan was one of approximately 77 people in the kitchen pantry waiting for Bobby to pass through on his way to the press conference with reporters. Can you imagine that taking place right now? Like, almost
1: 100 people packed in a... It's a tiny kitchen, too. Tiny. Yeah, there's not much room. Yeah. No one cleared by security of any kind. Like, no. it's unheard of in the standard. They didn't have
0: Secret Service protection at this time. All right. There was just regular, like, hotel security that were hired... Again, something we're going to get into next week. Barely any police, just all these people. And Bobby was used to that. Like he was, I've heard stories that he would get back to the hotel at night and have to put his hand in ice because his hand was swollen and cut up and bruised because of all the hands he was shaking. He'd have cuts on his arms from people scratching at him. His ties ripped, his clothes ripped. Like he was rock star level, you know, with some of these people. Um, And back then, like you can get a lot closer to him than you can now. And, you know, they wanted to shake your hand and be seen as a man of the people. And, And I think Bobby really liked that. And. You know, that's why, like, you know, we said Carl Euchre was holding his right arm, the maitre d, trying to walk him through. Bobby would rip his arm out to shake hands like he wouldn't. He was going to see these people who were excited to meet him.
1: If you remember that last season of West Wing, when Alan Alda was the, the presidential candidate, yes. same thing. Like yeah, his,
0: he, he like his, his right hand. was. Yeah, he was yeah. already like the old candidate and yeah, didn't yeah. want to show it. That's
1: yeah. probably what that was based on. I also heard and I'll just
0: throw this in now, too. It just is always weird and stuck with me. Every night after that he was done campaigning his team would have to have like a six pack of Heineken waiting for him. He wanted to drink Heineken in a glass over ice. Really mm. odd. So I tried it once. It's not good.
1: You got to drink very fast and it has to be very cold if you're going to put ice in there because you can't uh, have the ice melting at all.
0: Right. And also Heineken's just not good. And also I mean it's not <clears> great. I like Heineken. It's okay. It's not uh, you have to be in the mood. I have to be in the mood.
1: Here's for it. my problem with Heineken is that anytime I buy it around here, it's skunked mm-hmm. because it's a green bottle beer and yep. people don't know how to store it. Right. Like if you're overseas or, or somewhere, like it's I was on a, on a cruise not too long ago, I drank Heineken all week because it's great.
0: It can't be in all that light. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But they, they fuck it up over here all the time. Same with Rolling Rock. It's always skunked. Yeah. yeah. Green beer, green bottle beer. Maybe that's... Well, Rolling that's Rock that's skunked the second they <laughs> brew it. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that threw me
0: off though when I tried it is like... It's very weird sensation like when you're tasting a beer and a fucking ice cube hits your nose. Like you're just not used to that, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like it's not like a soda or a glass of water or iced tea where like it's natural. It's just weird having like a beer taste and with like ice cube. Anyways, but that's what Bobby, you know, would do at the end of the night. Maybe he wanted the ice for his
1: fucking hand. I don't know. Maybe. I love Heineken. I didn't know you loved it. I like, lo- like it's okay. I drink on vacation. I just don't buy it here. Cause it's skunked almost every other time I buy it. It's skunked. Well, on vacation too, it's a kind of a lighter tasting beer. So it's better for
0: like all day. kind of drink. You can drink all day yeah.
1: with Heinekens, Yep.
0: As Bobby approached, Sirhan pulled out an eight shot 22 caliber revolver, pointed it at the Senator and unloaded the gun. Sirhan was immediately seized by bystanders, wrestled to the floor and turned over to police when they arrived. To this day, Sirhan alleges to have no recollection of anything between the time he went to get coffee and being attacked by the angry mob. He claims, claims to have no recollection of the shooting or even having his gun on him. Hmm. Once in police custody, Sirhan initially appeared very calm. Though he claims to have no recollection of the shooting, he didn't once ask why he was arrested. For the first few days, Sirhan refused to speak with police. He wouldn't even identify himself to them. It wasn't until June 9th that Sirhan finally admitted to police that he greatly resented Bobby's support of Israel in the six-day war that had occurred the previous year. As an Arab, he felt Bobby betrayed him by supporting Israel. Additionally, he was angered that Bobby had promised to send 50 fighter jets to Israel if elected president. Two quick interesting notes here. First, it's believed by some who tend to lean more towards conspiracy that Sirhan truly doesn't recall killing Bobby. But because he was being praised by Arab and Palestinian activists for what he did, he admitted to the killing to be seen as a hero for their cause. Second, if in fact what Sirhan is saying is true, Bobby Kennedy's assassination would be the first American death due to an act of terrorism regarding the long standing Palestinian Israeli conflict.
1: That's an interesting point. Yeah. Who was the second?
0: What if I just said the answer? And it right? <laughs> By the way, I'm an expert on Palestinian-Israeli relations. Just call me uh, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> All right, let's get to the trial part of this. Some interesting things here. Throughout the entire court proceedings, Sirhan's behavior was bizarre. Even though he had admitted to the murder in a recorded confession with the police, his attorneys advised him to retract the confession and plead not guilty. When they first came to, came to
1: court in February of 1969. Yeah, which would is what they would have told him if he had uh, gotten their services before he talked to the police and confessed. Also true.
0: Hey, he held out three days without talking. Yeah, right? yeah. On February 10th, Sirhan's lawyers then made a motion to enter a plea of guilty to first degree murder in exchange for life imprisonment rather than the death penalty. But what the angle they were going for was that they were gonna uh, they were gonna admit that he did it but that he was not mentally stable at the time. Sirhan hated this idea. He did not want to be perceived as crazy, mentally unstable, having any kind of issues. What did he think his uh, no recollection of this was? Sirhan?
1: Yeah.
0: He 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 claims to not remember. He says, they tell me I did it. I remember being wrestled. I had a gun. I I, I guess I shot him, but I have no recollection of it. And what we'll get hmm. to in a minute, like things he wrote in his journal, he goes... It's my handwriting, but I don't remember writing it. So like he's admitting to it, mm. but always maintaining, I don't recall that. So his attorneys are trying to say, yeah, he did it, but let's just spare his life. No death penalty. He's going, no, I'm not. I'm not crazy. I don't agree to that. So after they they had uh, his lawyers made a motion to enter the plea of first degree murder, Sirhan told Judge Herbert V. Walker that he wanted to withdraw his original plea of not guilty in order to plead guilty as charged on all accounts. Additionally, he asked that he wanted his counsel to disassociate themselves from the case completely. And when the judge asked him what he wanted to do about sentencing, Sirhan stated, I will ask to be executed. Again, he'd rather do that than be seen as, I mean, he was a very prideful man. He he was, and very private as well. He didn't want people to know about him. He didn't want people to know about his life. He didn't want to be looked at as a crazy person. Now, part of that could be, again, this all goes back and forth. If you're saying, yes, I did it because I want, it was for Palestine and the Arab cause, well, then you don't want to be looked at as crazy because then that, it wasn't a-, a Invalidates a dirty, that. It invalidates it, sure. But again, he's still claiming he doesn't remember the shooting, which kind mm-hmm. of throws a twist in all of this.
1: And Can't he be a was, Palestinian it, hero if you don't remember doing it. And he was
0: getting a ton of support from Palestinian Arab activists.
1: Yeah, they're not going to want to hear that.
3: Yeah, that he All can't right. remember what he what he did.
0: And meanwhile, his attorneys like yeah, he's guilty. Like, let's just like, come on, <laughs> and we'll get more into that. Um, obviously, Judge Walker denied the motion um, by Sirhan and also denied his request for his counsel to withdraw. His counsel then themselves entered the, another their own motion to withdraw from their case of their own volition, but Walker denied that as well. As the trial proceeded, the prosecution, led by attorney Lynn Buck Compton, attempted to prove that this was a premeditated, politically motivated assassination. The defense, led by attorney Grant Cooper, did not deny that Sirhan killed Bobby Kennedy, but attempted to prove that Sirhan was suffering from diminished capacity at the time of the murder and also was intoxicated that this was not a premeditated attack.
1: Do you remember Buck Compton from Band of Brothers? No, I never saw that. Oh, you didn't watch that? No. have talked
0: about it. I've never, I didn't see it.
1: He was uh, one of the guys. Was uh, he really featured show. in that? In an oh, easy that's... company in uh, 101st. Huh. Look at that. It's true story.
0: In response, the prosecution provided evidence to support that Sirhan was seen at the Ambassador Hotel on June 3rd, two nights before the attack, trying to learn the building's layout and floor plan. They also mentioned that Sirhan had visited a gun range earlier in the day on June 4th. The prosecution also brought forth Alvin Clark, Sirhan's garbage collector, who testified that Sirhan had told him a month before the attack of his
3: intention to shoot Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> what? <laughs> Why didn't Alvin go to the authorities?
0: Alvin is a yeah. questionable character. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, <laughs> I think Alvin has his own crazy political views, and was, you know, he testified, but I mm. think you it, you could probably easily uh, just think that he might have. Uh, you know, had it in for Sir Han or you mm. know, something to that effect. F- here's the big one, though. Further supporting their claims that this was a premeditated attack in search of Sir Han's house, police found a notebook that had an entry of May 18th, 1968. That's a few weeks before the shooting. And it read, quote, my determination to eliminate RFK is becoming more and more of an unshakable obsession Robert F. Kennedy must be assassinated before June 5th, 1968. Circumstantial, Mike. <laughs> Do you have any real proof you'd like to add to this story? <laughs> June 5th, also, that the, the significance of that is that was the one-year anniversary of the start of the Six-Day War the year before. Mm-hmm. Additional journal, journal entries were found that would read, RFK must be disposed of, and quote, Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy must soon... Die, 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 die,
1: die, 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 What do you think he meant by that entry? <laughs> Not guilty. Circumstantial. Look, what if if the CIA in their MKUltra project wanted to frame Sirhan for this crime? Wouldn't it look exactly like this? A guy with all this evidence with no recollection of writing this or doing any of it? Yeah. Wouldn't that be their intended outcome sir And like I said earlier has admitted
0: that is my handwriting. I won't, I won't, mm. I won't uh, refute that, but I don't remember writing that. Um, and there is, you know, there's a lot to that whole hypnosis thing that again, we'll, we'll kind of get mm. into a little next week.
1: Might be the perfect setup here.
0: You know, was this part of the Rosicrucianism that he was doing to himself? Was this some mm. MK ultra Manchurian candidate stuff? Um, he clearly had it written. He says he has no, no memory of it. Mm. And that is the one thing that he's been consistent with from the beginning. So, I don't. I mean, make of that what you will. But nonetheless, Grant Cooper and the defense based much of their case on the testimony of Bernard L. Diamond, a professor of law and psychiatry, who testified that Sirhan was suffering from diminished capacity at the time of the murder. Um, Bernard Diamond and one of the prosecution psychiatrists both together put uh, Sirhan... Uh, They hypnotize Sirhan. Um, But I've heard the tapes, some of the tapes, the clips of the tapes. They're very leading in what they say. You know, uh, Sirhan, you're in the kitchen. You know, what are you seeing, Sirhan? Write down what you're seeing. What about your gun, Sirhan? Reach for your gun. Reach, And then, you know, then he's (laughs) reaching for his gun. And it's like, well, you're fucking telling him what to do. What's interesting, though, is that Mm. while they were were hypnotizing him, um, they were having him write stuff down. Two things of interest. One of the things he wrote down were A-M-O-R-C, which is the acronym Ancient Mystical Order Rosé Crucis. The other thing they wrote is they asked if he was alone, and he said no, and he wrote girl. Hmm. Dun, dun, dun. Are you foreshadowing to next week, Mike? Maybe. Okay. Maybe that's the end of it. Maybe he just wanted to get laid that night. <laughs> So they were resting their defense was resting on Bernard Diamond, the, the professor of law and psychiatry. They knew he would be found guilty. They were simply hoping to avoid a death sentence. Um, what's interesting is that uh, another quick note: the obviously they ran these hypnosis sessions together. The prosecution, defense psychiatrist, the defense psychiatrist was like, Oh yeah, he's suffering from diminished capacity. The prosecution psychiatrist was like, no, he's completely clear headed and knew what he was doing. And when he said that in the trial, Sirhan leaned over to his defense and was like, see, he thinks I'm not crazy, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. He really did not want to be Smart. Made to look uh, crazy. Uh, at one point during the trial, Cooper asked Sirhan if he had shot Bobby Sirhan replied, yes, sir. But then said he did not bear any ill will towards Bobby. Serhan would then later testify that he had killed Bobby, quote, with 20 years of malice aforethought. He explained in an interview in 1989 that this referred to the time since the creation of the state of Israel. However, he now maintains that he has no memory of making the statement in court. This consistent changing of his answers is something that would continue throughout interviews Serhan gave even years after the trial. We're going to play a clip here. It's about six minutes long. Uh, it's an interview that Sirhan gave to David Frost in uh, 1989. Um, but it's just interesting kind of him giving his overview on Bobby and, um, you know, uh, his thoughts on, on all of this kind of some, you know, 20 years removed from everything. So
6: when did your feelings start to take on this incredibly uh, uh, obsessional Quality. Was it the Arab-Israeli War after you came to this country? Well, or?
4: I, I suppose that it came to the fore where I began, where when I began to focus on it, it erupted as soon after the, the, the 1967 war where the Arabs had lost and the Israelis won and my anger at the American people's reaction to the loss of the Palestinians oh. and, uh, and the Arabs.
0: It was after a campaign speech in Oregon,
2: during which Kennedy promised military support for Israel, that Serhan targeted him for death. Serhan is now serving a life sentence at the California Correctional Facility at Soledad. He agreed to speak exclusively to Inside Edition with the hope that it might
0: help
4: him get
6: paroled. One speech that sets you off doesn't doesn't deserve a terrible fate like that. No,
4: I I agree, and I sincerely regret that. My my actions for that. I was young. I was you know immature. I was wild. I, I, I really didn't have the the ability to sit back and reflect on it as just one speech, one perhaps one pandering speech to a you know a potential block of voters whom he was appealing to. And now, of course, I realize that, and uh, and, and I wish that I could reverse all my actions concerning Robert Kennedy.
6: But why did Robert Kennedy? The- the friend of the downtrodden become the focus of this hatred?
4: Because to me, he was my hero. He was my champion. He was the protector and the defender of the downtrodden and the disadvantaged. And I felt that I was one. And to have him say that he was going to send 50 phantom jets to Israel... uh, to deliver nothing but death and destruction on my countrymen, that seemed as a story, were a betrayal, and it was sad for me to to accept, and it was hard for me to accept, and just didn't, and and my all my hopes were focused on Robert Kennedy. I was his supporter.
6: That was the quality that Robert Kennedy stood for was hope.
4: There was that loss of hope, but at, at the same time, saying, you know, and this is the part that really that really sort of angers me, that this this double standard of, of, of the politicians, and particularly Bobby Kennedy. On the one hand, in, during the 60s, uh, during the campaign, he was all uh, in favor of, uh, of stopping the war in Vietnam, and he wants to bring our boys home. And in the, in the next breath, he wants to send more bombs and more uh, Phantom jets to Israel to kill human beings, but, but Palestinians in this, in this instance.
2: In the months before the assassination, Sirhan kept a diary. In it, he wrote over and over again, "R.F.K. must die."
4: I don't even refer to them as diaries, really. They were just uh, scribblings, more than you know, detailed, uh, by, you know, uh, entries in a in a diary. But you no. said
6: R.F.K. must die. By That's
4: right, uh, I recall that. June
6: the fifth. Uh, but I mean, throughout that period, were your feelings just getting stronger and stronger, or what?
4: They must have been obviously, but I can't say that there was any deliberateness to the killing. I mean, they, not all my feelings were, you know, were be, were drumming towards that goal of, of assassinating Bobby Kennedy. No, but uh, it was just in general that, uh, I, and it wasn't just typical of me as an Arab. I think that a whole Arab community in this country uh, felt, you know, uh, downcast and crestfallen by the defeat of the by their defeat in in the, in the middle east
6: but again this this terrible punishment for one speech about phantom jets i mean
4: haunts people it does haunt people but suppose that you were a black or a hispanic living in america and had robert kennedy as your ideal champion as your savior in america and had you all of a sudden heard him say that he was going to spend, send some 50 jets to destroy all the black or Hispanic populations. And how would you have felt? And what would you have done if you thought that you could do something about it? You know.
6: And that's what you thought, you could do something exactly, about it. That's exactly...
4: Well, imagine, though, that if you were a German or if you were a Jew in, in, in Hitler's uh, Germany and if you had the opportunity to assassinate... Hitler, uh, I'm sure that uh, they would have tried to to do that. What to me, I felt But there's no
6: comparison between Hitler
4: and Robert Kennedy. Agreed, agreed. But the principle seems to be similar.
6: You said in the trial, um, I killed RFK with 20 years of malice aforethought. Now, you obviously did not know him. What
4: were you trying to say? I tried to really show that the Palestinian problem did not just suddenly erupt with the shooting of Bobby Kennedy, that there was a, a history to it that dated back to 1947, 1948, uh, when the the Pal- when the, the State of Israel was created forcibly on the Arabs and when the Palestinian Arabs were forced to uh, evacuate and uh, be expelled from their homes and lands uh, to accommodate the, the new arrivals, the new Jewish arrivals in Palestine. I feel that having experienced what I have experienced in Palestine, atrocities, the killings, the violence, and just the uprooting of, you know, of massive uh, populations, uh, it did have an impact on me, I suppose, more than it did on, on others. By, by By saying this, I'm not trying to discount the seriousness of the killing. So he, you know,
0: in that clip, he gives all the reasons why Bobby Kennedy is, is dead and maybe even himself accepts that he did it, but doesn't actually allude to doing the killing or take any, you know, say a direct I, responsibility, yeah, direct response. I guess that's probably the best way to put it. Um, gives his reasons for why he was upset with him, but those were some of the reasons why he gave in court.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you know, I also think it's weird. I watch these clips and I, om- I almost find Sirhan to be a likable person just a very soft-spoken, intelligent man listens to NPR. He's well kept up on the news. He doesn't come off as someone that, that you just look at and you're like, I hate this guy. Like he sucks. He comes off like kind of a quiet, likable guy. Maybe just a little misguided. Maybe so. I mean, I guess it depends what route you take with what you think actually happened here, but
1: I'll say that till next week for my, uh, my thoughts on that. This
0: entire show is just to set up for (laughs) next (laughs) week. Some people believe that Sirhan's constant changing of his answers and his behavior during the trial may have been part of the defense strategy to help prove further uh, further prove diminished capacity. I don't know if I necessarily buy that, though, because that was not something Sirhan was really on board for. After the trial, however, Sirhan's attorney Grant Cooper received a lot of criticism for his handling of the case. Not once did Cooper or his team try to prove that there was a larger conspiracy, a second gunman, or any co-conspirators involved in the assassination even though the police investigation and eyewitness reports would support at least some of these claims. One of the reasons speculated as to why Cooper may have been trying to deliberately throw the Sirhan case is due to a then-pending indictment against Cooper for possessing stolen transcripts of a grand jury proceeding in another case he had previously been working on. Some felt he was trying to stay in the good graces of the court and prosecuting attorneys. On April 17, 1969, about three months after the trial began, Sirhan Sirhan was convicted of first-degree murder and assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder. Six days later, he was sentenced to death by gas chamber. However, in 1972, California outlawed capital punishment and his sentence was commuted to life in prison. Since 2003, Sirhan's attorneys have been trying to get a new trial, stating Grant Cooper was compromised and neglectful during the initial trial. As recent as November of 2011, Sirhan's defense team filed court papers for a new trial saying that quote, expert analysis of recently uncovered evidence shows two guns were fired in the assassination and that Sirhan's revolver was not the gun that shot Kennedy and saying quote, he should be freed from prison or granted a new trial based on formidable evidence, asserting his innocence and horrendous violations of his rights. Uh, essentially his his uh defense team came out it, during this time period and said that they believed he was hypnotized and under a hypnotic state when he when he did the killing. They also again stated
1: they had evidence of possibly a second gun. How could you ever prove that? Prove what? Like under hypnosis stuff so many years later. That's that's very almost tough. Well, impossible. And that's
0: why in 2015 a judge denied it. Like that's yeah. The hypnosis thing would be really tough. The other thing, you know, some of the evidence that we'll we'll
1: we'll get into
0: very much can talk about that. But the hypn, yeah. How do you prove hypnosis? Like
1: the compromised attorney is one thing. Mm -hmm. Seems like the best option to getting a new trial. But yeah, I was hypnotized. I I didn't know it though. Like that. That's not going to happen.
0: There are witness reports of how calm Sirhan appeared during the shooting and the struggle. Um. Like people said, he had like a sleepiness and a calmness in his eyes, even as he's being wrestled to the ground. And then the whole three days of not talking to police, not really asking why he was
1: there. Like he was still in a fog or something, maybe. Yeah. Like, let me tell that's you, if someone you can get. Yeah. If someone set this up, they picked the perfect guy, a little kind of diminutive mm-hmm. Palestinian supporter. It, right. it all works perfectly. It was executed to it. If team. this was a setup, this is the most perfect setup in history.
0: Since 1972, Sirhan has been par- denied parole 16 times. Most recently, in August of 2021, a two-person parole board voted to grant Sirhan parole after finding that he no longer posed a threat to society. In January of 2022, this parole was denied by pa- California Governor Gavin Newsom. Who stated he denied the parole due to the severity of the crime and Sir Han's quote, current refusal to re- accept
1: responsibility for it? He's a rising star in the Democratic Party, and there's no fucking way he's pardoning the guy that shot Bobby Kennedy. Right. That's not happening.
0: Again, we're talking as early as this was 11 months ago, <laughs> 10 months ago.
1: And he's got presidential aspirations. He's not, you know. He certainly does. That's not happening. At each of these parole hearings,
0: Sirhan and his attorneys are able to submit new evidence in any attempt to approve his innocence, prove he did not act alone, or prove there was a larger conspiracy at hand. However, thus far, nothing has come from that. Just one quick side note before we close out. Six of Bobby's children, as well as his wife Ethel, who's still alive and kicking ass at 94 years old, all oppose parole for Sirhan and believe he's the one responsible for Bobby's death. However, two of Bobby's sons, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Douglas Kennedy, have offered their support for parole during Sirhan's appearances before the parole
1: board and believe he is not the person responsible for their father's death. Robert Kennedy Jr. is a bit of an anti vaxxer off off-the-rail guy now, right? He
0: went a little crazy there.
1: Yeah, he's married to our pal Cheryl Hines from Kirby Enthusiasm. Yeah, he is. Y'all
0: yeah, kick the coverage on that one. <laughs> The reason why people are so often split on this case or believe there's a bigger conspiracy at play simply comes down to one thing, the police investigation. While claiming they didn't want another, quote, Dallas, referring to the JFK conspiracies, the LAPD hid and destroyed evidence, refused to follow up on interviews, and even intimidated witnesses into changing their stories. Next week, we'll get into all of that, as well as theories of a second gunman, a Manchurian candidate, and my favorite the lady in the polka dot dress.
3: I bet it is pervert. (laughs)
0: She's allegedly a good looking woman.
3: Hmm. I'm excited for next week. I'm excited to read about uh, all the MK ultra stuff. Yeah. I know nothing about Sirhan other than what you've told me mm -hmm. in that there's a talk of mk ultra stuff with him
0: and i think that's really what it is is just talk i mean there's not a ton of evidence other than loose stuff that people have tried to string together and so we'll talk about that um it's definitely not the strongest of the theories but it is a theory yeah so
3: um you know we'll get into some of that a lot of that's hard too because when we uh, did our episode on mk ultra most of those files were destroyed yeah you know, almost nine, I'd say probably 90% of the files on MKUltra are gone. And when were those destroyed? I don't remember. When we, I can't remember, but. We'll get into it next week, though. Probably talk about that a bit. Like, eight, as soon as, like, shit started hitting the fan, maybe 80s, 90s. So it's
0: definitely after Sirhan.
3: Yes. The CIA was like, nope, we're gonna, just going to get rid of all this. Smart.
0: <laughs> and it's interesting, too, because it's like, when would this have happened? And I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler for next week, but we said Sirhan fell off the horse, hit his head. Medical records show that he was treated in the ER and discharged home like within a day. Sirhan says he has memories of waking up in a hospital over a two to three week period in and out of consciousness before being returned home.
3: You you get into that with all kind of people. There's arguments made about Charles Manson. Uh, one of his many times in a hospital, a prison system hospital, mm. being some MK Ultra stuff going on, where he was kept for a while. Jim yeah. Jones stayed at a hospital or was admitted to a hospital that had some MK Ultra ties. The way
1: I look at those things, if you if there was proof positive today that that's what happened, it was part of MK Ultra and they kind of orchestrated all this. Would you be surprised? I wouldn't be surprised. No, I don't in think the I would in be surprised, the least, Which makes me kind of more open and receptive to believing that things like this that might be linked to that. I mean, look what happened
3: to uh, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Yeah. He was a proven MKUltra, at least subjected to it for a period of time to those tests. Yeah. I would not be
1: surprised at all.
0: So a lot of what we touched on today, you know, obviously the Bobby Kennedy bio was, you know, factual and true. And um, the Sirhan stuff is, as best as we know and pretty much what the the authorities accept as is, is what happened. In their mind, this is the end of the story. That's it. He did it and the case is closed. So next week though, we'll get into some of that kind of behind the scenes the nitty gritty stuff. The reason why you all are probably listening to Necronomipod today. <laughs> it's not every search. good story needs to set up Mike. Yeah, it's it's okay. not certainly for my history lessons though, uh you know if you want me to ramble on about presidents, you know, maybe someday.
1: So later that year, there was a very wildly contentious uh, democratic convention in Chicago with lots of riots and protesters led to the famous trial of the Chicago seven with Abby Hoffman and yep. and, and those guys. Do you think any of that might've been different? Had Bobby lived and been part of this convention, possibly yeah. winning the nomination? Do you think, I think all that might've played out differently?
0: Yeah, because the candidate, I mean, spoiler alert, what, what happens is Bobby was killed and Eugene McCarthy was so distraught over that he dropped out. Humphrey took the nomination, which is essentially an extension of the of Lyndon Johnson. Johnson. Yeah. Um, one, I think Bobby still being in the race, they would have had more hope. They wouldn't have been so angry. Two, I think that that speech he gave in Indianapolis the night Martin Luther King was killed. Bobby had a very good way with his words. Uh, Very powerful
3: speaker. I actually uh, used the clip of the speech in a promised land.
0: There's your, I remember that from
3: Indianapolis that night. Yeah. It's a really good speech. Mm.
0: I, it is fantastic. I think, you know, having someone who who can speak like that, he, he could have helped calm things down if they were rough or tumultuous then. But I don't, I don't think they would have been if he was still alive, especially if he was going to the convention with a shot to win. You know, they probably would have just been ready to go and ready to party that, you know, he was gonna have a chance to win. But the fact that it was just over with at that maybe so. Um, McCarthy dropped out, you know, the, the this whatever happened in that kitchen ended all their hope for that and uh Humphrey was gonna be the candidate and spoiler alert, also he did not win. <laughs> no, he did not. No. It was close. It was a closer race than I think closer than seventy two. Also true. Yeah. But it also tells me that if it was close between Humphrey and Nixon, it tells me, I think Kennedy would have beat Nixon. It's like Hubert Humphrey was, he was vice president, but he wasn't a Kennedy. I think, I think Robert Kennedy in my, maybe I'm being biased, but I don't think I am. I think Robert Kennedy would have won the presidency in the election of 68. I think he would have,
1: I'm not even sure he would have won the nomination, but maybe he,
0: he was closing the gap pretty good. And the Kennedy power, the Kennedy train behind him, I think, I think he would have all possible and it's it, fun
1: to debate. What ifs though?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it changes the entire course of history. Then you don't have Watergate. You don't have, you know, maybe Vietnam going on, you know, another six years or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but it, uh, if, if Humphrey did as well as he did against Nixon, I feel like Kennedy against Nixon would have done better. Maybe so. And then Nixon could have walked around saying he got his ass kicked by both Kennedy brothers. That's right. lost. Anyways, we'll save Tricky Dick for another day. <laughs> that was a lot of talking by me. I apologize. You guys got any other thoughts or anything about this one?
1: Uh, no, I'm looking forward to hearing these conspiracy theories. As always, I learned a lot.
3: Good. I
0: hope people Things learned. that I
1: did not know. That's always my goal
0: with these is just I hope people enjoy them and I hope they, you know, I know it's not typical necro stuff, um, but I hope they enjoy them and I hope they learn something from it.
1: I hadn't heard that. What was his name Andrew West? That on the spot news clip mm. for a long time. I, I remember that now that I heard it. But yeah, just how kind of close and in the moment that was. Yeah, wild, it's really, it's a wild clip. Yeah, it absolutely is. That guy had crazy composure.
3: Yeah,
0: and again, seventy-seven people in this small ass kitchen. Like it's gotta be chaos. Like people are everywhere. People are falling. People are getting shot. People are stampeding by you. People are charging Sirhan.
1: Or like no bus boy or no but no secret service, no bodyguards, like the bus boy's holding his head. The bus boy's holding his head. The bus boy is the first one there. And like you know, I'm
0: sure we'll post the photo. Um, but you know, it's it's a really tragic scene. And then Ethel's kind of brought in and she's yelling it at it, like, get back, give him space, let him breathe. It's crazy. Um, you know, just trying to protect her husband there a little bit again
3: of uh, three months pregnant with their 11th child. Awful. When did the secret service uh, start following all politicians?
0: It might've been after this. Question. I think it was after this. Was it? Yeah.
1: Like when all legitimate presidential candidates got secret Service check project- <laughs> 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 <playing> protection <laughs> A Casey Anthony will still pay 500,000 for your beef. Probably yeah. after can- this. <laughs> yeah, that would make a lot of sense.
0: Major candidates and their spouses began receiving protection after the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah. Prior to that, they did not receive any protection.
3: That's crazy.
1: It's crazy because five years earlier, you know, yeah. his brother, the president was assassinated. And what's also interesting is it wasn't
0: until just three years before this 1965 that former presidents would maintain Secret Service detail, hmm. you know, which they get now the rest of their lives. But that wasn't until 65. Lyndon Johnson's like, yeah, fuck, we're passing this because my ass is <laughs> out of here <laughs> and I'm not well liked right now.
1: <laughs> I need someone to watch my bunghole. That's right. My big ball sacks hanging too close to my bunghole.
0: Everything's bigger in Texas, right? <laughs> so, okay. He's got anything fun to share? I don't have anything fun. Kind of
1: fun? exhausted my mental capacity. I have capacity. an observation I was going to mention to you guys. Okay. Have you noticed that all the stores you go in into town, like when you're checking out, they're like, oh, would you like to donate a dollar to help kids yeah. in need? Mm-hmm. And it's always broad, like kind of could be anything. You mean like. It's- Hashtag tax write-offs. Yeah, like yeah. this company collects all our money and then takes the tax write-off for donating our money. It's not it even is.
0: stores. All the fast food places do it. I'm now tired
1: too. of it. Taco yeah. Bell. Would is you like cra- to round up to the nearest yeah. dollar to yeah. donate to kids? Want to help kids with their <laughs> yeah. kids? You want to help kids in schools? What, that doesn't mean anything. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, actually, it's too much. It's an epidemic. The
3: other day, I did not d- donate. My dollar—it's one of those things—and and she uh, was like, oh, "asshole." Uh, my wife judged me on it. She's like, "Why wouldn't you just round up?" I'm like, "It's a tax break. They just—yeah—they don't like. Where does that money even go? Like Nowhere. My charitable
1: contributions are on my time. It's not when I go to the <laughs> store to get a fucking bagel. Like, fuck off. Yeah. Especially if you go to it's that outward. store several times a week, like what I, I got to give money every time I come in here.
0: But you get to write your name on that little heart and put it on the wall. Yeah, it's so
1: stupid. I don't want my name on the wall. I want you to stop harassing me. Yeah. <laughs> and don't ask me if I want the receipt. The answer is always no. I will ask you if I want the receipt. I don't have a rewards card. I don't no. want to donate money. I don't need a fucking receipt. I just want to be the fuck out of your just give store. Give me my twelve pack of fucking Heineken that you've already skunked up for me,
0: and let me be on my goddamn way. This is the start of
1: Dave's presidential run for 2024. <laughs> this is his campaign uh, platform. I'll tell you, My uh, my wife and daughter, were, this was a couple of years ago, they went to the movie theater and they were getting popcorn or something. And they did the same thing there. And they're like, no, thank you. And the girl's like, hey, fuck the sick kids. Am I right?
0: <laughs> oh but that's probably, like, would you like to round up to help sick kids? Uh, uh, excuse me? Can you be more specific? No. Like they
1: don't ever state specific charities or mm-hmm. like, oh, would you like to help horses and would you like to donate ten dollars to help horses in need? <laughs> like what's that? that? Doesn't mean anything. <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah, that's just, it's just a big tax. Uh, yeah, break it's
0: a right? scam. Yeah. Stop doing that. If you want to help out, go to your nearest soup kitchen. They're always looking yeah. for people.
1: Give some money to, to your bank. local food bank. Yeah, that's yeah, for talk. real. Yeah, for real. Absurd. Yeah. Okay. that's all I got today
0: (laughs) wasn't what I was expecting but I quite enjoyed that
3: it (laughs) happens. so every time at drug mart that's where I'm always at every time but every fast food place now I think does it well there are big ones with that writing your name on a fucking sticker or whatever
1: yeah I don't want to write my name well
0: the the, the gas stations (laughs) up on 18 both did it too I don't know if Speedway still doesn't go there but the shell always has that stuff going on And yeah, and now it's the holiday season. It's going to get even worse,
1: probably. Would you like to donate two dollars for unemployed (laughs) porn stars from the seventies? Stop! I'm listening.
0: (laughs) Who specifically might I be helping out? (laughs) Debbie from Does Dallas. What's she up to these days? She can't be uh, uh, having much work thrown at her.
1: I'm not anti-charity, but it's just very vague and scammy. Yeah. Because they're taking no, tax write off. There's
0: tons of good charities and, and probably even local, like, you know, um, rape crisis centers and battered women's shelters and things like that that you can yeah. donate to or give your time to. Or like we said, uh, like the, the food bank or soup kitchens, any of that stuff.
1: Yeah. Give your time, <laughs> not your money.
0: That's right. Or give some of both. Just don't give it to fucking Taco Bell when you're getting a drunk-ass cheesy gritty to crunch.
1: That's right. That's a black hole pit of money. Who knows where the fuck that's going? Not to sick kids. Yeah, <laughs> I like kids. Yeah, oh, kids. Like kids. Would you like to help? Would you like to donate? Would you like to round up to help kids that were born with no assholes? Sure. Because that's what's gonna happen to me when I eat this fucking cheesy gordita crunch. LB in the drive. Like,
0: you mean there's kids
1: with no bong holes out there? Wahaha! Well, this shit. <laughs>
0: How do they get their conduct their business meetings? (laughs) Okay, Dave, uh, what do you got for uh, Patreon?
1: Thank you to new patrons Dude Bro, Cooter Shooter, Sarah Kubis, Ivan Malantz Backpacker Hostel. I don't think I want to stay there. Jester, Faith Clark, Kate W., David Everson, Caroline Ladd, Cassie Tripp, Cy Cooper. Audrey Mike, call me I'm pregnant. Do you know who this girl is, Mike? Oh, fuck. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry. I lost your number. <laughs> Audrey Thorne, resting bitch face. Oh, my wife must have joined again. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Not true. Kidding. I almost spit out my beer. <laughs> Amber is my energy. Laura Hildebrand. Anthony McCartney. Carson Keelan. Harley Manns. Jesse M., Deanna Woods, Natalie Prokop, Richard Lowe, Jacqueline Sutton, Ashley Thoman, Justin Andrews, Sarah Mulville Hill, Claudia Davari, Tasha, Sarah Stokes. I thought it was Sarah Strokes for a second there. So mm,
0: what's up? our porn fans.
1: <laughs> Andrea Bonagofsky, Savannah Miller. Colonel Cream Pie of the Labia Legionnaire, formerly known as Cum Commander of the Seaman Fleet. This is
0: the original guy.
1: He's I I had a bit of a name change. He's taken on a new position in the. Uh, well, well, he's well, in the Labia Legionnaire now. What was it? What was he? What was the beginning part of his new title? Colonel Cream Pie of the Labia Legionnaire. Formerly known as the come commander of the seaman fleet. So he's on a new role.
0: Colonel is higher than commander, right? That's he got a, promoted promote? to
1: a new uh, outfit. Apparently okay, Colonel cream pie <laughs> in the cellar with a heart on <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Gadsby, Christy Slosky, Lupe Sanador, Nicole S Marina and Becky Kelly. Thank you. New patrons so much patreon.com
0: slash necronomapod if you wish to sign up for uh, all of our bonus content ian
3: for itunes i have one for victoria zero zero nine freak like b fat yo boy remus uh ali sawyer furry pickles and leap 18 thank you guys for the awesome reviews
1: wasn't there a Haley double D's in there? I thought I saw.
3: Yeah, I think I said that one last. Oh, week. was that last week? Yeah, I happened to just see that one. He
1: just want to say it again.
0: Say it <laughs> again. <laughs> it's like, what's up, Haley double D's? <laughs> or as I call her, Haley D. <laughs> I
1: haven't seen Samantha loves Dave in a long time. She's still I think alive. she probably
0: got maybe taken out by one of the, her rivals in the triple so? threat match.
1: Triple letter match. When old
0: Amy took her out. <laughs> they had a they had a Tokyo-Japan death match. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Exploding barbed wire <laughs> ring.
0: Dave, what do you got internationally for us?
1: I have nothing internationally. I have a couple military shout-outs. I have John D. from the U.S. Army. His buddy Pat from the Navy. Both homies uh, originate from Boston, Massachusetts. Appreciate your service, fellas. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And
0: look at that. They get a shout out on the uh, Kennedy episode.
1: How about that? Oh, hey, hey, hey oh, I love the hometown crowd. Thank you for protecting and serving our country, young men in the Army and the Navy. Look at that. We like paid cameo for that special shout out from the Kennedys. I yes, hope yes. you boys tag
0: team to hot blonde like me and Jack did with Marilyn. It's a, it's a mashup of every Kennedy, just them. And it's uh it's what you get. All right. Well, thank you to them. Um, anything else? We good. I think I'm good. Yeah. Yeah, this is getting off the rails quick now. <laughs> Uh, we are on hey, 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 I wonder what
1: Colonel Cole, Colonel Pie is doing tonight We are on Twitter,
0: Facebook, Instagram, YouTube At Necronomapod I
1: was Admiral Anus my time
0: <laughs> As we said <laughs> Patreon.com slash Necronomapod
1: Brigadier General Backdoor Sorry, Mike. Go ahead.
0: I don't remember what I even said. You'll find us. We're on. Go to Linktree on our socials.
1: Are you guys ready? Colonel Congalengus, what are you doing? Enough. (laughs) All right, you guys
3: ready for a cold beer?
1: Cheers.